Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I'm really thrilled that we're going to explore this topic today with the world's greatest researcher, really, on the optimism bias. Yeah, today we have the pleasure of welcoming one of, as you said, the world's leading researchers on emotion, decision-making, and perhaps particularly optimism, Dr. Tally Sherratt. Dr. Sherratt is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at the University College London and the director of the Effective Brain Lab. The Effective Brain Lab studies how our experience of emotion affects human cognition and behavior. To give an example, how does the experience of threat affect the way that our memory works? Dr. Sherratt has authored enormously influential research that has been published in top scientific journals, including Nature and Science. She's also the author of some wonderful books, including The Optimism Bias, A Tour of the Irrationally Positive Brain, and The Influential Mind, What the Brain Reveals About Our Power to Change Others. So, Tali, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? My pleasure. Thank you. It's lovely to join you. Yeah, it's great to have you here, like truly. And I would love to start with your work on optimism. So if you wouldn't mind starting by just kind of giving a general explanation, what is the optimism bias? And could you give a couple of examples of it? Yeah. So the optimism bias is our tendency to overestimate the likelihood of experiencing positive events in our lives, such as, for example, having a very successful career, having a long, happy marriage, having talented kids and underestimating the likelihood of having negative events happen to us, such as being ill, being in an accident, having financial troubles. And it also is related to our tendency to imagine the future as being better than the present and the past. So to kind of get into people's experience of it, what are some of the distinct ways that this appears in people's everyday behavior? Are there tendencies that people have toward perceiving the world optimistically that are really common, that just kind of like infiltrate the way that we act day to day? Yeah. So one kind of consequence of having the optimism bias is actually taking risks perhaps more than we should, not taking precautionary action, such as not going to medical screenings when we should, perhaps not wearing a helmet when we bike, not wearing a mask during a pandemic. So those are kind of the, I guess, negative behaviors that could be a consequence of this optimism bias. But it can also lead to positive behaviors. So if I think that I'm going to succeed at work, even if my assumption is a bit higher than what it should be based on all the data in front of me, that means that enhances my motivation. And so I'm more likely to try harder, put more effort in, put more time in. And in fact, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you think you're going to succeed, you put more effort in, and the more effort you put, you're more likely to succeed. And so it's a bit like, you know, they say you have to believe that you're going to get the gold to get the silver, right? Because if you think I'm not even going to get any medal, then you don't try as hard, and that can actually cause you to do worse. If you locate this bias, which is inherently a distortion of what reality really is, at least statistically in terms of the priors, right? that might affect an individual. It's always tricky to ground this in evolutionary psychology, but if you think about hunter-gatherers, you know, in our ancestry until roughly 10,000 years ago, how do you see the optimism bias functioning to promote individual survival and group survival and passing on of genes and so forth? How do you see that optimism bias functioning and having a beneficial effect? It's kind of like a helpful delusion 
for people in a hunter-gatherer situation? So even today, there are benefits that you can think of in evolutionary terms. So if we have an optimism bias, it also means that we're more optimistic, that we have positive expectations. And it has been shown that optimists are likely to survive longer. So they actually live longer. They get over illnesses quicker. And the reason is it's not magic. It's not that positive thinking, just it's like magically enhancing my health or something like that. But rather, it's two things. One is if I have these positive expectations, then it reduces stress. And that is a positive impact on our physical health. Also, optimists are people who tend to think that good things will happen because they're putting in the actions. So people think, oh, I will follow the doctor's orders, right? I will follow the guidelines. And that's why I won't get infected. I will be healthy. And so they go ahead and they actually more likely to eat well, exercise, and so on. And that, of course, has a positive effect on their health. So that's a relationship with physical health. But in terms of other things that can help our survival, there are two important factors that optimism affect. One is motivation, which we, I kind of mentioned before. So if I think I'm going to do well, then I put more effort into it. I'm more likely to actually succeed. If you think, well, I need to get out of my cave to get food. I need to believe that there's a high likelihood that I'll get food and I'll come back in one piece in order to get out of the cave, right? So that's important for self-survival, but it's also important for the group survival. You have to have people that are optimistic enough to go out and get the food and bring it back to the cave. And then there's a relationship with exploration. So I need to believe that there's something out there that I haven't seen before, something better than what I have in order to explore. And so if you think about our ancestors leaving Africa, exploring the rest of the world, they had to believe that there is something there that is worth going further away and, and trying to find. So this is all the relationship between optimism and why it probably has been selected for over the course of evolution. However, I think this story is a little bit more interesting because we talked a little bit before about the disadvantages of optimism and how it actually can cause negative consequences, right? I think if I underestimate my risk, I may go hunting and get killed, right? I need to have some kind of, of understanding of what my risks are to actually make sure that I don't take really risks that I shouldn't. And so that is a bit problematic because we talked about how optimism can cause you not to take precautionary action, right? Not to go to medical screenings, not to buy insurance when you should, not to put in a belt when you're in the car. And these are negative consequences. So most kind of uh, academics, whether it's psychologists or philosophers that have thought about this question, they tend to say, well, okay, there's these positive advantages to optimism for survival, and there are the costs. And they said, well, probably given that we have optimism bias in such a huge part of our population, probably the advantages has outweighed the cost. And so that's probably why we have evolved to have this optimism bias. However, if you think about it, whether the advantages actually outweigh the cost depends on the environment that you live in. So if you're in a relatively safe environment, like you and I are in today, even in a pandemic or relatively safe environment, perhaps indeed the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. But if you are in a really threatening situation, perhaps the optimism bias under those circumstances are not in fact helpful. And people have done simulations, have done computer simulations to see what would have evolved in different environments. And they found, yes, in relatively safe environments, as long as the benefits to cost, like how much resources I can get versus the risks are in favor of, of the benefits, you would probably have a population that has evolved to have optimism, but in not in threatening environments. So we actually recently thought that, well, maybe the answer is a little bit different, which is you can see the optimism bias in people in relatively safe environments, but put people 
under threat, and maybe the bias will disappear. So maybe what is adaptive is not the optimism bias per se. What is adaptive is the flexibility of the bias. That is, the bias can show up, but it can also go away in response to the environment in a way that's adaptive. And that's exactly what we found. We found that if you put people under threatening environments, the mechanisms that generate optimism bias actually disappear acutely. And then you put them back in the safe environment and they come again really, really fast. So I think that is kind of the trick that evolution had played on our brain to make the optimism bias actually something that is helpful for the survival of our species. So given the benefits of optimism, what about people in the subgroup who are not terribly optimistic, they're more pessimistic, and what could someone do to help themselves to talk themselves into even, or just develop more of an emotional orientation, a kind of expectancy or attitude or priming of a certain stance as they move forward in life that would enable people who are listening, who think, you know, yeah, I really do need to start regarding the glass as half full, not empty. I, I need to really start imagining that if I do open up more, try more, dare greatly more, as Brene Brown says, you know, I'm kind of likely for it to turn out well. How could a person become more optimistic over time? Yeah, so we see that about 20% of the population do not have an optimism bias. Half of those 20% tend to have some depression symptoms. It can be mild depression, or it can go up to severe depression, which actually is associated with a pessimistic bias. And then you have 10% that are not necessarily depressed. They won't become depressed in their life, but they don't have an optimism bias. But what's interesting is that there's many more people who believe that they're pessimistic than they actually are people who show pessimism. So there is somewhat of a relationship of how we define ourselves to what we actually are, but it's not, there is some dissociation. So the way a lot of times we have subjects, uh, you know, people come into our lab and they say, no, I'm a pessimist or I'm a realist. And then you do the test and you find, no, they're just as optimistic as everyone else. And there's many ways for us to test it. But one thing is just have you predict all sorts of things that are going to happen from just like, okay, in the next month, how many times are you going to get stuck in traffic? How many times will you get a present that you didn't expect? You'll see a movie that you like, blah, blah, blah. And we find that in general, people tend to overestimate the likelihood of positive events, just everyday positive events, you know, having a nice dinner. And they tend to underestimate the number of negative. And that is true also for people who don't expect that they would do so. So even pessimists, they're not pessimists, but people who think they're pessimistic, and a good percentage of them are actually not pessimists. Self-declared pessimists. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, self-declared pessimists. But what can they do? So if you are, what can you do? So... Part of our tendency for optimism is partially genetically determined and partially is learned. So people tend to think 30 to 40% genetics and the rest is non-genetic, meaning environment. Well, also what individuals do inside their own minds. In other words, the distinction between what's heritable and what's acquired. Yeah. But what you do in your mind is also a combination of the two, right? Correct. I just wanted to underscore the element of agency in people, in addition to environmental influences in terms of the qualities we acquire over time, which you well know. Right. So Martin Seligman, who studied optimism for many years, has a few studies where he tried to do just that. He tried to take people who actually have, some of them have mild depression, some of them are just pessimistic tendencies, and turn them into people with more optimistic tendencies. And what he did, he said the following. He said, well, optimists, they tend to interpret events in the following way. When something good happens, let's say you are an engineer and your project worked really well, 
What optimists tend to do, they tend to interpret this positive event as a consequence of their own trait, stable traits. So they say, oh, this project went well because, you know, I'm a person that really concentrates and puts efforts in, you know, in this. And so it relates to me and it's stable, which means, you know, it's something in the future, I'm also going to be the type of person who can concentrate and put the effort in. So I will succeed again and again in the future. They also tend to generalize beyond that one domain. So my engineering project went well, but you know what? It's because I'm a good manager and that means I'll be also a good parent because I, I can manage my kids. So they take this example of success and then they generalize it to other domains in life. And so then they have optimistic expectations that generalize beyond that one domain, like professional success. While pessimists do exactly the opposite thing. They say, I succeeded. Well, it was just luck, you know. And if it's just luck, well, that doesn't mean it's going to happen again. And it definitely doesn't mean it's going to happen again in another domain, right? So what he does, he tries to train people to interpret event in an optimistic manner, right? And according to his studies, he is successful to some degree. These people did show more optimistic tendencies, but more importantly, both their mental and physical health was improved after the training. So there are possibilities. And one way to help ourselves become more optimistic is to push on our appraisals, our expectations, right? And I suspect as well to increase the sense of one's own resilience, one's own capabilities, one's own kind of more emotional, somatic confidence in oneself. And then there too, there's a sense of, I'm assuming one would become more optimistic. And, and also probably I'm imagining, given how profoundly social we are as a species, the more that a person has kind of an awareness of and a salience regarding, you know, a focus on the sense that others are actually going to be helpful. They won't be that obstructive. It's not like being a kid in school, say, you know, the more you have a sense of colleagues and friends and family who are kind of rooting for you or will support you, there too, that too might I'm imagining, I speak as a longtime therapist here too, might incline someone to be more hopeful and optimistic in how they approach life. Does that sound true when you think about it? It sounds true. And I think that is not a bias. That is actually correct expectations. So if I have a good, strong social network, it is true that I'm more likely to succeed and be happier. And so then the question becomes, how do I live a happier life? And I'm talking about being aware of that fact, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. So you're saying they already have it, but they're not aware of it. Correct. Or they're underestimating it, or they could have an opportunity to highlight it as an experience inside them that, you know, others are with me as I go down the road of life. Yeah. And, and one thing we find is that there are characteristics that are tightly related to optimism that you can't change. However, if you're aware of them, you may be more inclined to do something about. So for example, we find that optimism changes with age in a U-shaped fashion. So kids and teenagers tend to have high optimism and it declines and it reaches rock bottom in your midlife and then it starts going up again. And people don't really know about the thing that it goes up again. So people kind of know about this midlife crisis thing. But in fact, it nicely goes up towards until the last few years of life. The same thing is with happiness. Happiness and optimism are tightly related. So it is kind of this middle age. I mean, this is, of course, a general, you know, you might have people who have more problems during the teenager. But if you take the general population, you have this little dip in your midlife. And so, first of all, it's good to know that if you are in that situation, perhaps a good percentage of the world is with you, <laughs> of the mid, you know, <laughs> you're not alone. And it's good to have an explanation of, okay, this is what you should expect with life. But you're right. If you are in this part of life, you may want to think, what can I do about it? 
Right. So it sounds like Forrest is heading into this slump of pessimism, and I'm coming way out of it, <laughs> catching the upswing. He looks like he's far away from that I was point. just about to make a joke about it, too. As a 33-year-old, I can feel myself begin to... <laughs> and I'm way, I'm way at the bottom. Oh, yeah. I'm way like... <laughs> no wonder everything looks rosy to me. I can feel myself begin to crest. Maybe it's early dementia. I don't know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, exactly, dad over there, Captain Optimism. <laughs> there are so many possibilities here. So Talia, I, I want to kind of return to something that you were saying a second ago about optimism basically being about prediction, right? We're, we're looking forward to the future. We're doing effective forecasting. And I wanted to kind of ask about and maybe contrast with, we know from a lot of research in psychology that negative experiences that happen in the past are very strongly valenced in memory. Like we have a strong memory association. You think about traumatic experiences. Many people have done work on this. And negative experiences in a moment, particularly ones that are like startling or arouse fear, tend to be really snapped to by the brain in terms of, at least this is my understanding of the research. How do those things kind of interact with our prospective bias, our future-oriented bias around optimism? Are these just different domains? Do they have some like interweaving with each other? Kind of what's going on here? Because people hear us talk about the quote unquote negativity bias all the time on the podcast. Yeah. So memory is really interesting. And in fact, I started my scientific career by studying how memories, emotional memories are generated, be collected and so on, how emotion changes memory. So first of all, when it comes to memory, interestingly, we remember things that are arousing better than things that are not arousing. That arousal can be negative or positive. So the most negative events in your life, you remember quite well and vividly, and the most positive as well. So it could be a wedding or whatever, these kind of things as well. It is just the case that in life, more arousing events tend to be negative <laughs> than positive. Because a lot of positive is just kind of being relaxed. You know, it doesn't really have this high arousal and it's high arousal that really matters. But as long as the arousal is high, it can be positive or negative. It's not kind of related to whether it's negative. When people tend to talk about memories, they think that the negative ones are more are remembered better, but it's not, it's equal. But here's the thing, when you look at the future, it's not equal. Then there's a valence difference, right? So how come? Well, what tends to happen is that people do remember these negative events and they tend to interpret them as now I've learned something. And so this event is less likely to happen to me in the future. Let's say it's a really bad breakup. Most people would say, this is what I've learned. You know, it's really bad. I feel really sad and, and all of that. It hurt me a lot. I've now learned something from it and I'm less likely to make the same mistakes again. And that's really a huge part of optimism, right? The kind of the tendency to think, well, I can learn and therefore make better decisions and control my life. And in fact, the idea of control is very much related to optimism because one of the reasons that people are optimistic is that they believe they have control over their life. And so if I have agency, that means I can steer the wheel in the right direction. I can make choices that will get me in a better place. Another interesting relationship between memory and prospection is actually the neural mechanisms involved. So the same brain mechanism that is important for memory including, for example, the hippocampus, which is part of the brain that's very important for memory, but not just the hippocampus. Those are the same regions that are very important for us to be able to imagine the future. And that makes sense because if you imagine anything in the future, imagine your next holiday, for example. In order to imagine the next holiday, what you do is you retrieve bits and pieces from your past holidays 
or you retrieve memories of watching holidays and movie and so on. And then you take those bits and pieces and put them together to construct something new. You on holiday next summer. And so, in fact, scientists have suggested that memory has evolved not in order to remember, but memory has evolved in order to be able to plan and make plans and think about what is going to happen in the future. To function adaptively in tough conditions. Yeah. How do you square the optimism bias with the common finding that in relationships, negative interactions tend to have more impact than positive ones, including in shaping individual expectations about what the next interaction will be like with that other person or what will happen if the next time they do something with the other person. So it seems as if there's a kind of interpersonal, emotional memory bias for negative interactions, as it were. How does that live alongside the optimism bias, do you think? So that's an interesting example because, in fact, one of the mechanisms that generate the optimism bias is our tendency to learn more from positive information than negative information. So, for example, if you tell me, I think there's going to be half a million listeners to my podcast, and I say, oh, it's going to be closer to 700,000, you know, this is good news, right? You say, oh, okay, well then, maybe it's be like, you know, 699,000. So you learn quickly from the information. But if you say, I think it's going to be a half a million, I say, no, I think it's going to be more like 300,000. Then you say, yeah, she doesn't know what she's talking about. I know better. You know, it's going to be closer to 500,000. So you learn more from negative and positive. And we've seen this in many different experiments in many different domains. When we first found this, I thought that it was only when information is kind of ambiguous, so you can interpret it in different ways. But in fact, since then, people have shown this to be true also for actual outcomes where you actually get things, you know, things actually happen and you learn more from, from the positive than the negative on average. So I don't know the literature about relationship per se. I do know literature in general that has come from a very prominent researcher, and I forgot her name at the moment, but she had these research showing, oh, for every one negative event, the impact of one negative event is equal to the impact of free positive or something like that. There was some kind of ratio. Barbara Fredrickson, I think you're thinking of. Exactly. And so there has been research since then that hasn't been able to replicate and show that that is true in perhaps certain circumstances. I don't know the literature well enough to know who's right about this, but I just read enough to know that it's a little bit maybe unclear. But, you know, intuitively, I feel what you're saying is right. You know, intuitively, I feel, oh, yeah, of course, if you have an argument, but then I don't know. But then if someone does something really nice to you, that also has an effect. So I don't know the data. I don't have the numbers. So I, I don't really know. Yeah, And I think partly we're also talking about the interaction, the combination of a sort of self-conscious, semi-rational expectations of the future, right? Predictions of the future occurring alongside much less conscious, much more nonverbal, emotional, just feelings and priming and dispositions toward someone you're in a relationship with that are affected, let's say, by negative events more intensively, to say, than positive ones. I'll just speak about my wife here and my marriage and for his mom. I just noticed for myself that- Very dangerous, very risky. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> that in the course of a day, we'll mostly have really great interactions. But I tend to not think about them, maybe because I've just habituated to them because they're the norm. But that one little snarky comment she makes or the one way she doesn't really appreciate the major efforts I'm making to cook her something good for breakfast or whatever, 
oh, <laughs> that tends to have a longer shadow, which then attitudinally shapes my expectancies, does shape in some ways my appraisals of what it would be like to have the next interaction with her. So I'm just kind of wondering how these mix together, this conscious and verbal process of prediction, interacting with underlying dispositional kind of attitudes or orientations into a situation and how we're affected negatively by things that happen to us. Okay. So I think you actually gave the answer in your example. Okay, good. It'll improve my marriage overnight. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> what you said was that you learn more from unexpected occurrences, the oddballs. And again, this is not so much about negative and positive. It's just that it happens to be in life that for people like us, our day-to-day -day life is mostly just, you know, either neutral interaction or slightly positive interactions, you know, and the negative ones are actually more of an oddball. And it is true that we learn more from oddballs. We learn more from surprising events. And all the research that I told you about before you gave that example, there are experiments in which we actually control for how surprising the information is. We make sure that the positive information is equally surprising or unsurprising as a negative, right? That they're oddballs to the same extent. So once you control for things like surprise and arousal and frequency, and then just look at valence, then we found positive has more impact. But you're absolutely right that in life, the negative happens. Like it may happen once a day, but the, you know, people, mostly you go to a store and they say, oh, how are you? Have a good day. And then once in a while, people say, yeah, get out of, you know, they say, but it's unusual, right? How often did that happen? When it happens, then you definitely remember it and you're not going to go back to that store. And intersecting with what you're saying here, Tali, I mean, obviously I'm I'm just throwing opinions out there rather than actually performing research on it. But if we do have an optimism bias, that makes it harder for us to be surprised by things that are positive. Right. So we take into account what's known as people's priors, right? So in order to calculate this, we first figure out what your expectation is. And then I give you events or information that is different from what you expect in either a positive or negative direction to the same degree, right? And so that's absolutely right. The fact that we have positive expectations, that also means that those negative events are more surprising. You're drawing a lot of really interesting distinctions here around surprise and arousal and kind of what gets people going to kind of like bend the conversation a little bit toward your other book and your other kind of primary focus of work right now in terms of influence and power and the dynamics of decision making that people have. You've made a reference a couple times in the conversation around behavior change and people's priors and how we absorb information and all of that. And right now, there are a lot of people, it's the time of year where they're thinking about how they can change their behavior. And it's a time of year where people are thinking about habits and how they can actually like motivate themselves to change. And, you know, we just exited an election cycle. A lot of people are also thinking about how to change other people, but that might be a slightly different topic. So what are some of the structures that actually impact our behavior as opposed to the stuff that maybe we think is good for us to change our behavior? So one thing that's really important for changing behavior is the immediate consequences of that behavior. So a lot of people, when they try to, to convince themselves, okay, I need to start exercising more or eating better, they do that by telling themselves, well, I exercise more, you know, and eat better. I will eventually be healthier or I'll, you know, I'll lose those like five kilograms or whatever <laughs> it is in pounds. It's kind of like looking in the future and the future can be maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months, maybe even more than that. Or they think, oh, I really need to invest because for retirement, right? And, and so they need to do these things now 
But the reason they don't, it's so hard to do these things, it's like you don't get the benefit at the same time. You get the benefit way in the future, and that's a huge problem. And so a solution to that is to try to figure out what is the immediate benefits of the behavior. And if those are not naturally occurring, you have to kind of insert them in, right? So for example, a lot of people are trying to exercise more. One woman once, uh, you know, when I was talking about that, she said, you know, the way I convinced myself to go to exercise is I told myself every time you go to the gym and you get on the treadmill, you allow yourself to read those trashy magazines. She said, you know, she reads those trashy magazines. Usually she doesn't read. But like knowing that once she's in the gym and she's on the treadmill, she can like read those trashy magazines. That's an immediate reward, right? Immediately, that's something that makes her happy. She usually doesn't do it. Or like, while you're on a treadmill, you can watch something that you like to watch, but usually you don't do that or something like that. Another woman told me she was trying to get her husband to go to the gym and nothing worked until he finally went one day. And when he got back, she told him, ooh, your muscles are so much stronger, right? So it was her feedback, her positive feedback that caused him to then go the second day because it's like immediately he could see the reaction on his wife. So it's important to think about what are the immediate rewards and those you can give yourself or for when you're trying to help other people do better, whether it's your kid or your spouse or whatever. So that's one thing is immediate rewards. And then when you think about trying to help other people, one way to kind of help people is to give them a sense that they're making the choice. So one thing that's very important is for people to feel that they have control and agency, and and that actually makes them feel better. And in fact, if you're trying to help someone and you say, look, you have to do this, this is what you have to do, that actually often gets the opposite reaction. You know, if you say, well, you have to start going to the gym, otherwise, you know, you're really more likely to get ill and so on. It actually gives people a sense that it's not their choice, and it may cause them to be less likely to do it. So to really get people motivated to do something it has to be in a way where they're making the actual choice. So you can kind of like push them or direct them, but give them a sense that they're actually making the choice themselves. If I could ask you a completely out of the left field question, here it is. If you were, let's say, in charge of messaging related to human-caused global climate change, particularly related to CO2 emissions, let's say, or other forms of human behavior, and you had a very high level government post, you know, the, everyone has seen the light somehow in you know, Whitehall in Washington, DC. And you're in charge of maybe one or two or three major fundamental principles to influence the general public, who will then in turn potentially influence policymakers, industrialists, and all the rest of that, to really move toward, let's say, decarbonization and so on. What are one, two, or three major principles that you would offer? So the problem with climate change, and the reason I'm going to start with the problems, because if we know the problems, it's easier to think about solutions. The problem with people acting towards reducing climate change is that, first of all, it's way into the future, right? So this is a problem that we talked about before. It's so into the future. I mean, the real real effects is so into the future that probably we won't experience the really tragic effects ourselves. But, you know, it's something that maybe our kids, maybe our grandkids. And that's one problem. So not only is it into the future, it's probably not happening to me, right? It's going to happen, then real negative consequences is happening to someone else. And most of the ways to overcome them are usually framed as 
I have to sacrifice. It's usually you sacrifice and the benefit will be to someone else in the future. This is like the worst kind of frame that, that it can be. And then the other kind of not great framing is that it's always framed in a disaster kind of way. It's like when climate change happens, you know, the world is going to, it's, it's really, really kind of this the doomsday scenario, right? Why is that a bad thing? Because people tend to not want to engage with that kind of thinking. If you hear about that, you're like, oh, I'd rather kind of think about Christmas, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, your accurate, not biased appraisals here are making me depressed. <laughs> <laughs> So I think one of the questions that people need to ask, the policymakers need to ask is, okay, we want people to engage in certain behaviors, or we want them to vote for certain policies. What are the benefits to the people themselves? And what are the immediate benefits? Because some of these policies, in fact, have benefits to you now, even regardless of climate change. For example, some advances to technology, right? I mean, so some of the solutions for climate change will involve putting a lot of money in certain types of technology, which will give people employment. It can affect like research and knowledge. So there are certain benefits. There could also be benefits to the climate at the moment, maybe that are not as substantial um, and I don't know what those are. I'm, I'm not, you know, but we could say, oh, well, you know, it will actually make the air cleaner. That has a, a significant benefit or some benefit to you immediately. So highlight what are the immediate benefits to the individuals living today. And the other thing that I suggest is instead of focusing on the worst case scenario or the likely negative scenario, focus on the positive, meaning if we do A, B, and C, this is the world that we could live in, right? We could live in a world where the air quality is, is much higher, our kids of kids and kids, uh, generations to come will live off more resources for longer, you know, whatever the benefits are. But paint the scenario of the place where we want to get to rather than focusing on painting the scenario of the place that we will get to if we don't take the action. So kind of like highlighting the goal and then the actions we need to reach that goal, but also highlighting the immediate goals and the immediate rewards that we can get out of it. That was really useful. Seriously. Thank you very much. Yeah. Alongside that, one of the things that I think that a lot of people are struggling with that's kind of implicit in what you're saying here, Tali, is that often it's not enough to just give people new information in order to change their opinion. And this is, as you're incredibly familiar with, a very well-researched phenomenon that just like either screaming fake news at somebody or otherwise just providing accurate information is not enough to change somebody's mind on things most of the time. What are some of the things that are? Like what does help change people's minds? Yeah, and I absolutely agree with you. The most important things are actually incentives or just policy rules to just like tell you this is what you're going to do. And they are actually incentives when it comes to climate change. So I'll, I will start with like little ones to maybe bigger ones. So in my department, in my university, different departments get prizes for being green, right? <laughs> and so my department always gets a prize for being green. And it actually motivates people, right? I mean, they're working toward climate change, but they really want those like free gold stars, whatever that they could put. And You're gamifying climate change. That's great. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they go out of their way they, and they come up with really interesting ways to do it. Right. You know, we have green steps that show you that you walk up the stairs rather than taking the elevator. 
There's all of these things. So it's this combination of you're rewarding people to do these things. And then, then my department comes up with all of these nudges, like these green steps. So you just follow them. Why not? You know, so it's kind of these like automatic nudges. Other incentives where I live, you're allowed, you have like a trash can that you can put out once a week. But like the recycling one that you're given by the city is like way bigger than the non-recyclable ones, right? So like if you don't recycle, then you can't throw away your trash. You just, you're left with your trash in your home. So this is like very clever. I mean, and and so this is a huge incentive because we need to get rid of our trash. So there's many, these are just examples, but of course there's things like tax. This is really important what you're going to tax. So if you put in incentives where you're either rewarded or you have to pay for not doing the right thing, these are, of course, as any like classic economist would tell you, the most powerful things. Mm. If I could pry a bit, at the personal level, given everything you've learned about how the mind works and how the brain works. Can you give an example of something in particular that you've changed for yourself or you've taken on maybe as a deliberate kind of personal practice to help yourself be more optimistic or capture the benefits of optimism without the cost? So I can tell you what what I think. It's true for me and I think it's true for most people. It's really hard to change yourself. It's much easier to change your interactions with others But if everyone were to do that, then everyone would benefit, right? The number one place I think where this has been very helpful for me was in raising my kids. I have definitely implemented a lot of these things, like, you know, giving them agency, giving them control, making them have the choice. They make the salad, you know, they choose what to wear rather than me telling them. Another thing that I'm a big advocate for is that highlighting the goals rather than we talked about a little bit about highlighting what the goal is, where you want to get, not where the bad place that you can get. So rather than saying, if you don't wear a coat, you'll get ill, I'm more like, wear your coat, you'll be nice and cozy and warm. So always highlighting the positive and the goals. And I think it's gone relatively well. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I fail to follow my rules, but I think it's been going very well. I try to do it with my team as well. So with the students in my lab, as much as I can. Again, you can consciously try to do it. It doesn't mean that all the time I can follow it. And, but if you try to do it, at least more percentage of the time, you will do. And again, I think it's very helpful. In changing myself, I never had a problem in like getting myself to do stuff really. I guess with age, I used to be quite optimistic and I followed that U shape. So now I think I'm less optimistic than I ever was. <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't even tried to try to change that, I have to admit. So I'm not so good at altering my own mindset. To alter my own mindset, in fact, what I do, and I, I think not everyone is inclined to, I do things like I know that exercising makes me feel so much better. And so to change my mental state, I just make sure that I go for a run every morning that kind of thing. Try to socialize as much as I can. Of course, during the pandemic, this is not possible, but do those things that you kind of know is good for you from knowing yourself, but also from research. So you've done, obviously, just profoundly deep work into like human behavior, the study of people's brains, what makes people tick, all of that stuff. And I asked a question, we had Dacher Keltner on the podcast recently, and we were talking about like awe and positive emotion and that kind of stuff. And I asked him a similar question. I'm just curious what your thought is. In all of the work that you've done here, has this made you think kind of like more warmly about human nature or less warmly about it? <sighs> it's a good question. I often think about what I think about human nature, if it's mostly mostly positive or mostly money. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, because yeah. I mean, there's some stuff in here that's so positive and wonderful, you know, optimism bias and perspective bias and all that good stuff. But mm-hmm. also it just really lays bare kind of how bad we are at appraising the world accurately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think humans are a combination, of course. We've managed to do amazing things, getting to the moon and getting vaccines for COVID-19 within like less than a year. Of course, there's a lot of amazing things that we do, and those are interesting. And a lot of people in my field are interested in figuring out, how is it that we're so good at these things? Like, what makes us so good? And that's an interesting question. But in fact, the questions that kind of like pull me more are the ones about our stupidity. (laughs) Or not our stupidity. (laughs) (laughs) As a human, thinking about your own nature too, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's it's what makes us like the, the core of our humanity, right? Why do we have these like illusions that are not right? And I think what's interesting for me that the answer is not that we're stupid, but that we're trying to maximize things that we're not aware that trying to maximize. For example, I think there is a value to our beliefs. You know, what we believe in is not only about what's accurate. But our beliefs have value because they make us good, feel good, or make us feel bad. Our beliefs have value because people around us have the same beliefs, so it makes us feel connected. And and so if you try to take some like an economic framework to understand beliefs, that is, instead of thinking about beliefs as are they true or not true, but think of them like how much value do they have? In that way, you actually find that perhaps what we're doing is we're actually maximizing the value of what's inside our mind. Those are the kind of things that are kind of fun for me to think about. I'm going to remember that, Tali, that you said just there, because that's a good guide for me. I have a personal interest in bias and kind of cognitive bias in particular. But I think that that reframing of not so much are we appraising things accurately, but are we appraising things in the way most conducive to some kind of goal that's out there in the world, whether it's kind of our mental health or our developmental survival or whatever else, I think is a really useful reframing of it. So thank you for that. As we get to the end here, is there anything that you're currently working on that you want to share with people? Any questions that are really interesting you right now? One thing that my lab is working on a lot is trying to figure out how people decide what information they want to consume. So what information they seek out and what are the motivations for seeking out information? And there are a lot of motivations. I seek information to make better decisions. I seek information to make myself feel better. I seek information to understand the world better. And a lot of times these are conflicting. So some information will make you understand the world better, but also make you feel negative. And how do you reconcile this? How do you decide what to do? Should I read the news about COVID or should I just like ignore it and not get any <laughs> feeds about it? And what we're interested in is individual differences in this domain. So different people make different decisions and they have different tendencies of what information they consume and what's guiding them. And we're interested in what differentiates these people and whether it gives us some clues about their mental state as well. So that's that's one thing that we're doing now. That's really fascinating. That's awesome stuff. Yeah, and I look forward to hearing more about it as, as it manifests out in the world. So Tali, thank you so much for doing this today. This has been totally wonderful. And such lovely answers, honestly. It was really great talking with you today. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Tali Sherritt. We started with her work on the optimism bias, which is one of her fundamental findings. The optimism bias is our general human tendency to have a prospective bias toward optimism. To put simply, we tend to anticipate that more good things will happen to us than will actually, generally speaking, happen to us. For instance, there have been studies of divorce lawyers who radically overestimate how likely their personal marriage is to be successful even though they should be very aware of how high the divorce rate is. 
And this appears in a wide variety of arenas in people's lives. People tend to think that they're healthier than average, that their children will be smarter and more skillful than average, and that general in work, their outcomes will be better than average. And as we know, everyone can't be above average. Having this bias sounds like a good thing. We generally paint optimistic people in a positive light relative to pessimistic people, but any bias means that we're not interpreting the world accurately, and the optimism bias does come with some consequences. The most common one being not taking appropriate protective behavior, and maybe alongside that, failing to update our perception of the world or our information accurately when we are faced with a new negative piece of information. Tali gave an example related to episode downloads of the podcast, where if we said, oh, it's going to get 500 downloads, and she said, oh, no, it's going to get 700 downloads, we would be very quick to update our estimation to 700. But if she estimated that it would get just 300, we would be very slow to reduce our estimate to 300. On the other hand, optimism has a lot of positive benefits. It can make people feel more agent. It tends to improve health outcomes, not due to magic, but because people tend to be less stressed when they're optimistic. We spent a little bit of time talking about how optimism gets into us from an evolutionary perspective. On the one hand, of course, our ancestors had to survive in very harsh conditions. And part of that is about expecting that things could go really bad when they're out in the world or about running away from situations that could prove threatening to our survival. But also, in order to survive, early humans had to be able to believe in themselves that even if they missed out on their hunt the first four times that they left their cave, well, maybe the fifth time they were going to be successful. And they needed to have the desire on some deep and fundamental level to see what lies beyond the horizon. We then talked about the negativity bias and the optimism bias and the way in which these two biases interweave with each other. Tally really turned her focus less on negativity and more on surprise. When we're surprised by something, it tends to be really prioritized in memory. And because we have an optimism bias, because if we think about a scale from negative 10 to positive 10, we kind of expect the world to exist around a plus two or plus three. It's harder for us to be surprised by a positive experience than it is for us to be surprised by a negative one. Equally, most of the positive experiences that happen in the course of our life are pretty mild, whether you're an animal or even an early human who's just kind of lounging around the savanna, not really being immediately threatened by anything, but not having this enormously positive experience as well. Or you're a modern human living under what are really pretty cushy conditions most of the time, even for people who are experiencing a lot of economic hardship. Or whether you're a modern human, and even modern humans that are under a lot of economic pressure are living in very warm and fluffy circumstances relative to the way that people were living a thousand years ago or certainly 10,000 years ago. So the things that startle us tend to be negative, and a particularly common thing that tends to startle us that's negative is found inside of our interactions with other people. We then move to focusing on behavior change and influence, both how we can impact our own behavior and how we can try to impact the behavior of other people. Tali affirmed something that we've explored in other podcasts, which is just having new information tends not to change people's minds about things very often. Tali emphasized the importance of two things. The first, immediate feedback. 
not focusing on something that's going to happen six months or six years or 600 years from now, but something that I can experience differently in my life today if I do something different behaviorally. And then second, she talked about giving people incentives. If we want to, for instance, have a positive impact on climate change, it's effective to incentivize people to change their behavior, whether that's by giving them a smaller garbage can or giving them some kind of a tax credit for moving toward renewable energy. So that's it for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, it would really help us out. You can also join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. For the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and receive a bunch of extras in return. And then finally, if you'd like, please tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways to tell more people about the show. And again, it really does help us out. So until next time, we hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening.